My guest today is Grover Norquist. Grover is the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Founded in 1985, ATR is probably the best known taxpayer advocacy organization in the world. Americans have likely seen Grover on TV as he's a regular media guest, appeared on shows like The Daily Show, Real Time with Bill Maher, and probably every show Fox News has. His organization is often in the media each election cycle when the majority of Republican candidates line up to sign ATR's Taxpayer Protection Pledge. In 1993, Grover started the Wednesday meeting where Republican and conservative operatives gather weekly at the ATR offices to share what they're working on and to foster cooperation. These meetings have now been replicated in 45 state capitals and 19 countries around the world. Good to see you again, Grover. Thanks for doing this. And my Absolutely. First, <laughs> my first question. Oh, well, thank yeah. you so much. Uh, my first question is more of an origin story for you personally. How, how did you come to believe that government should be small and, and taxes should be low? That's an interesting question. I started as an anti-communist, uh, grew up in Massachusetts at a time when the left was uh, all over being collaborators. Uh, and I lived on Red Hill or Communist Hill, depending. I'm sorry, Red Hill or Liberal Hill were the two phrases for it. It was a hill where an awful lot of hard left people lived in uh, my small town. Uh, and I ran into people who actually truly wanted the Soviet Union to win the Cold War. Uh, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, Herb Philbrick ran communist <laughs> uh, cell meetings down the road from my wow. house. Not while I was growing up, it was before <laughs> me. But uh, it was, uh, so that was the sort of first conflict. And when you realize what too much government does and how it leads to murder uh, and enslavement, uh, it, and then at some point you decide, you know what, I think it's not just the communists whose government is too big. I think our government is also too big and we would be better off being freer. And part of it's just being in the United States and and having the founding fathers and others who talked about what they wanted to create. And you realize that we'd gone off the rails to a certain extent in government getting too big. And then just every day-to-day -day thing that you see in terms of taxes and spending and ridiculous things that governments do, even in a relatively free society. Um, so uh, I did, uh, I, I read Ayn Rand, the uh, Russian emigre who writes about free markets and open society and individualism. But uh, people often ask, you know, did you become politically active because of Ayn Rand? And mm -hmm. the actual answer is in college, I started reading Ayn Rand's novels because I get tired of people telling me I was a Randian. <laughs> so I said, okay, what's this all about? And uh, then I went and read all the, the, the books there. So um, uh, it just, it, one, it was common sense. And two, it was in reaction to the very visible costs of really, really big government. And then realizing when it gets smaller, uh, it's less horrific, but it still causes an awful lot of damage in people's lives unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. And so when you were done college, you ended up uh, connecting with uh, with President Reagan uh, eventually there. What what how did you come to know President Reagan? What was that uh, relationship like? Sure. Well, right after college, uh, I was trying to decide what to do. I was accepted at Harvard Business School uh, and I was going to go straight from Harvard undergrad to Harvard Business School. Uh, but then somebody said to me, you know, there's a job opening being the number two guy at the National Taxpayers Union in D.C., which was a libertarian taxpayer group. Uh, Bill Bonner uh, and others. And I said, I 
I want to do that. So I went down. It was the associate um, director. And then Bill Bonner moved on to something else. And I became the executive director of the National Taxpayers Union, which was like the only national taxpayer group at all. Small operation, but it was bigger than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, at a time in 1978, 79, when the tax revolt was exploding out of California and through other states, including Massachusetts. So uh, that was really very, very interesting to be in the middle of the beginning of the tax revolt, which then led to Reagan's success two years later as a candidate and then as a president. Uh, so it, it was being there at almost the beginning. California Prop 13 mm -hmm. was uh, June of 78, and I started working for Americans for Tax Forum late June 1978 and worked in all 50 states and traveled everywhere politically organizing at the time. Then I went to business school. Then I came back down to do more politics. But I met Reagan in 80 uh, in a fundraiser that he did in New Hampshire. Uh, mm -hmm. And I helped to, to organize it and get it going. Uh, and then came down to D.C. Uh, with the Republican Party, college Republicans. I was executive director of the University of Organizing College Students. Uh, met Reagan in that capacity and said hi. Uh, was invited to a dinner dealing with the Polish issue. Um, and then the Reagan administration, Reagan and the Secretary of Treasury, asked me to run Americans for Tax Reform, which they had actually created. Um, oh, as, they, they, they created it already? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I it didn't was, know that. It was all set up and they handed it to uh, me. Um, <laughs> well, people on the, I don't cool. think the government people did it, but the people on the outside, yes, Bill Barr, now at the, more recently the attorney general several mm -hmm. times, uh, he was at a law firm and I think he incorporated it. Uh, and then they asked me to work, to run it because they knew that I'd been doing taxpayer organizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was the legislative, the, the structure that was the outside lobby to pass the Reagan tax reform act of 1986 which took the top individual rates to 15 and 28, only two rates, 15 and 28. Love to go back to those good old days. <laughs> um, and uh, took the corporate rate down from 50 to 34. So all of the progress that was made, uh, and then we didn't do anything useful until the Trump tax cuts. I mean, it was just basically after Reagan, we were giving some stuff up and mm -hmm. uh, not going ahead the uh, Trump tax cuts, the Republican tax cuts when Trump was president, took the corporate rate from 35. Clinton had taken it to 35 from 34 because he's a jerk. Uh, and we took that down to 21. That's why the American economy is still standing, despite all the other stupid things we've been doing recently. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So what those talk to me about those early days of ATR. Like, how did you raise money? What kind of activities were you taking on in those first few years? Sure. Um, the two years... Uh, 85, 86, um, the, the money was actually pre-raised largely for us. So to keep it going, I had to become, become a fundraiser, uh, but it was set for that campaign. And what happened in that campaign that was remarkable, that we, we pushed for it and everything, but the interest in tax reform was by the actual pub, general public was almost zero. It was like painful. We'd, we'd do ads. <laughs> You could do a free telegram into the White House or into your congressman. You know, uh, almost nobody did it, right? We we're we're going to pay for the telegrams to go in. This is back before email and whatnot. Sure. Uh, just 
the grassroots support. I mean, it was a bipartisan deal, so there was good and bad, but the good part was reducing the, the rates um, and cleaning up the code uh, and getting to two single rates at the individual level, very impressive stuff, and taking the corporate rate down. Um, but I worked with a lot of congressmen, and in doing so, here was the big concern the conservatives had. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the rates down, we're going to broaden the base, and it'll be revenue neutral. It was. It actually, we saved about 60 billion dollars lower taxes over 10 years. It was revenue neutral. Wasn't a tax increase at all. They worried the two things would happen. One, we'd all get together and we'd have a big agreement and then few hand top guys would go into that room, the smoke filled room where nobody else was. And Bob Dole, who was the Republican leader for crying out loud, who didn't mind tax increases because he didn't understand taxes. I don't know how you get to be a senator and not have a clue what's going on, but he did. Um, we ran him for president later, also clueless, and he lost. But um, this is this is pre-Reagan, right? I mean, Reagan's president, but the House and the Senate was not filled with Reagan Republicans. Mm. When Reagan showed up, he wasn't the only Reagan Republican in Congress, but he was pretty close to the only Reagan Republican. And you had to wait for these people to die or retire mm. or lose in order to replace pre-Reagan Republicans who... Oh, tax cuts are one thing you could do instead of the thing you do every year mm -hmm. and size of government's something to be concerned about instead of it's the thing to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, so Reagan changed the modern Republican Party in his campaign and in his eight years as presidency. And it's never going back, even though people keep trying to reinvent it and tell you, I've got a new theory. Uh, about how we should be Republicans. <laughs> you know, not, let's not focus on tax cuts. Okay, how about you go away because we're not listening to this nonsense. Uh, so we got, um, I came up with a pledge mm -hmm. and the pledge was no raising rates and no raising total taxes. You can't broaden mm -hmm. the base to raise taxes, no raising rates. So that from now on, taxes will not be raised again. And I got 100 congressmen to sign it, all Republicans and 20 senators, all Republicans, and Reagan. And with that, everybody knew that if you went into that little room and came back with it, something that when you unpacked it was a tax increase, mm -hmm. it was not going to pass the Senate, it was not going to pass the House, the president would veto it. And so whatever plans some of the pre-Reagan Republicans had, mm -hmm. they had to give those up. Whatever plans the Democrats had, well, well, you know, we fooled them once in 82, got them to agree to a tax hike. Maybe we could fool them again make this revenue increasing. Didn't happen. We realized how powerful that was in the 86 election. The Democrats sued me and said, wow. you have broken the law. How? Said, you are C4, meaning you can lobby, but not endorse candidates. We're 501C4. That's legally what's called mm -hmm. uh, a lobby group or pressure group. or uh, advocacy so the group, Canadians yeah. call them pressure yeah, groups. Yeah, advocacy. Yeah, sure. Advocacy groups, right. Yeah. Not, not election groups. You don't say vote for mm -hmm. Fred, but you say taxes should be lower. And here's a bill that's really good. Mm -hmm. So um, they said, you're not allowed to endorse candidates. I said, I didn't endorse anybody. They said, no, you said this candidate signed the pledge. And everyone knows that's the right answer. <laughs> and my thought was, could you talk to the Democrat Congress and the senators? Because if everyone knows it's the right answer, perhaps you should explain it to them. Um, and they were correct in going, this is a very powerful issue. We do not want it to be around. People have announced the pledge is dead every several years. Oh, nobody cares about the pledge anymore. We have more than 90% of the Republicans in the House and Senate have taken the pledge, kept it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's what's changed things in the United States. The fact that the Republican Party became the party that would never raise your taxes. Now, it took a while. We knew in 86, 88 that it mattered. Bush won the nomination. George Herbert Walker Bush, Reagan's vice president, won the nomination to uh, against a bunch of other Republicans, including Dole, who people thought might be the nominee. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the candidates signed the pledge never to raise taxes, to veto any tax increase, except all, except all. And okay. in the New Hampshire primary, the first primary that everybody's focused on, there was a debate a couple of days before the primary, and all the candidates said, you know, Senator Dole, we've all signed the pledge. Where are you? Hmm. And they sort of tossed it into his lap, hmm. and he reacted like a vampire, and somebody tossed a crucifix in his lap. <laughs> uh, oh, it, it, was, it was very visible on TV. He lost the primary in New Hampshire. Hmm. She was the tax increaser and everybody else wasn't. Bush won the primary. Uh, and then he was 14 points behind Mike Dukakis, then hmm. governor of Massachusetts, 14 points down. And then he said, read my lips, no new taxes. I'm Ronald Reagan. I'm going to be Reagan's third term. Mm-hmm. No new taxes. Sign the pledge. And he won. And then we, you know, but then two years later, one of his staffers, Dick Darman, talked him into a tax increase. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, he turned to his guys and said, can I do this? I signed the pledge. And the, all the smart people who, oh, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can. And then they came to me and said, now, don't say anything about this, right? I said, you're off. You're nuts. <laughs> you push the president into traffic. You get him out of traffic. Don't ask yeah. me to tell the traffic to stop. That's right. not happening. <laughs> um, and the president got crushed in the next election. Mm-hmm. He, he managed the collapse of the Soviet Union. He kicked Iraq out of Kuwait without sticking around for 25 years to occupy the place. Mm -hmm. Um, And he raised taxes. So successful, except for one hole in the bottom of the boat, boat sank like a rock. Mm -hmm. And George Bush, who should be remembered as the guy who managed the collapse of the Soviet Union, is is remembered as the guy who lied his way into office, said he wouldn't raise taxes, and did, and turned the economy around from where it was growing to where it wasn't growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, read my lips has got to be the most famous quote when someone thinks of uh, George H. W. Bush. That's uh, yeah. yeah, no question. So, have you had any? I, I jump ahead here to ask these questions about the taxpayer protection yeah. pledge. So, what, have you had any Democrats ever sign it? We have had a couple. Um, we had two senators and five congressmen sign it before the '94 election. In the '94 election, when 95 percent of Republicans made the pledge, uh, that's when we won the House and Senate. As the party that will never raise your taxes, with everybody going, we're never raising taxes. We swept in 94 and 97, won the House and the Senate. And since that election, no Republican has voted for a tax increase. No tax increase has passed if the Republicans had either the House or the Senate. And instead of the previous 62 years, from 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to 1994, 62 years, Hmm. Republicans held Congress for four years. Hmm. Two two year terms, four of sixty two. We had a one party state in America. Mm-hmm. Okay, presidents don't get to do anything except start wars and veto bills. Congress passes tax increases, tax cuts, laws, repeals laws, passes laws, okay's judges. Congress is where the power is in the United States, not the presidency. He flies in the big plane. He doesn't wield real power. Hmm. Um, Congress does it. So we had Congress completely Democrat sixty two years. Since 94, since the Republican Party became the party that would not raise your taxes, mm-hmm. they may invade small countries they can't pronounce, 
as Bush Jr. did, but they will not raise your taxes. 60% of the time, the Republicans have won the House and the Senate, won Congress, 60%. Hmm. Not four out of 62 years, 60%. We are the dominant party in Congress. Mm-hmm. It's pretty even, 60-40, but- It's quite the change it, though. Yes, big change. That's the big change. Everyone goes, oh, you didn't get both houses this time. Guys, we weren't even competitors in either house for 62 years. What are you talking about? Now we're talking, you know, we're, talking, ah, we, we're off by one or two in the Senate. By the way, there's seven Republic, Democrat senators in Republican states up for election in 24. That Senate will be Republican after 24. By one vote, by seven votes, I don't know, but it'll be Republican. Um, so we're going back into a period of Republican Congress. The Democrats will flail around trying to spend some money, but the Republicans are back to running Congress. Uh, hopefully they'll get the presidency. Um, but this is where the, the pledge has made all the difference in the world. You asked about Democrats. Mm-hmm. Two Democrat senators signed the pledge going into the 94 election. Five Democrat congressmen. After the election, two Democrat senators switched parties to become Republicans. Oh, interesting. Five Democrat congressmen <laughs> switched. All the pledge takers no kidding. switched parties. So huh. right now we have no Democrats in Washington, mm-hmm. House, Senate, who've taken the pledge. Uh, we have no, the, most of the Republican governors have signed the pledge. Uh, many of the state legislators have signed the pledge. There may be some D's in there, but you know, there's like a thousand plus pledge takers. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any Democrats who signed the pledge. If this is the big difference between the parties. The Democrat party will raise your taxes every time they're in power, and the Republicans will cut your taxes every time they're in power. Everything else is negotiable. But taxes are the thing that divide the two parties. So what? what so I mean, you said that you haven't had uh, anyone break the pledge at the Congress level, but I'm sure you've had someone at the state level break the pledge. What What does ATR do in those cases when someone decides to break the pledge? Oh, sure. Well, we did have somebody break the pledge, George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. And he lost the next election as, you know, nobody's life is a complete waste. Some people serve as bad examples. That's <laughs> George Herbert Walker Bush. Children, children, don't do that. Look, don't do that. Okay. Um, when I was a kid, my parents would point out street people, study hard, kids, study hard, don't end up like this. And that people do that now with George Herbert Walker Bush. Don't raise taxes. You end up in the gutter. It's not good. Um, and at the local level, we've had a bunch of state legislators who've broken the pledge because they took it not focused enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've done these very nice Western stuff. We had a woman working for us who's from Germany, and uh, the Germans love American Westerns. So they did this big wanted poster with everybody who broke the pledge, the pictures of anybody who broke the pledge as a not wanted poster. And it's all this (laughs) Western, you know, uh, background and so on. We sent them in Virginia. We sent, I think, 90,000 out to Mm. registered Republicans with the pictures of all the Republicans who voted wrong on it um, because they got talked into it. And the Republicans, because they voted twice for tax increases in Virginia, the Republican mm-hmm. Party lost control of Virginia for a number of years. Hmm. Uh, we regained the House and we gunned the governorship. And he's a guy who, who's taken the pledge, tells him, I'm, I'm not raising any taxes, not happening, not happening, not happening. And we can have a Republican Virginia again if the Republican Party does what Governor Youngkin says they want to do, be the party that won't raise taxes, be the party that won't raise taxes. Uh, similarly, we had people who um, 
uh, broke the pledge in a couple of other states, and then they just get defeated in the next election. Mm-hmm. North Carolina, we had lots of collaborator Republicans who voted for tax increase, swept out of office, including leadership. Now mm-hmm. North Carolina is a solid red state. They're busy phasing their income tax to zero. Four years from now, there'll be no corporate income tax in North Carolina. So when you get on the path of we're not raising taxes, in fact, we're cutting them, then the Republican Party becomes dominant. Florida, Texas, some of these other states, we're never raising taxes, guys. That's when you lock down the state as Republican. You uh, you mentioned there's uh, some states looking at, uh, at at reducing their taxes to zero. There's eight right now, I think you said, that have zero income tax. Uh, we've seen people voting with their feet, moving from California to places like Texas. Yeah. Uh, so other 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 states are doing this. How many are you seeing and, and are you expecting more? Oh, sure. There are eight states with zero personal income tax. There are nine states with a single rate tax, meaning... Um, there's like like 3% or 4%. There's, there's not a graduated tax. And the reason why single rate taxes are important is it's very difficult to raise a single rate tax. Uh, Pennsylvania and Illinois, Illinois has got a single rate tax of about 4%. You'd think, they're, uh, Illinois, Illinois. You'd think Illinois would be at 10 because they're crazy and they're Democrats. <laughs> but the constitution says you can't go from a single rate tax. The governor spent the left-wing Democrat governor spent fifty million dollars to go to a graduated income tax. His own money, his own money. He's a rich guy, um, and you must not think he earns it or deserves it because he thinks the government should take it from everybody else, including from him. But he put fifty million dollars into that campaign, and it lost. Same day people voted for uh, uh, Biden. So. Um, Tough to raise a single rate tax. You have to look everybody in the eye and say, I'm picking everybody's pockets. And everyone mm-hmm. goes, we're all listening. We're all listening. Tell us about this. <laughs> we're all watching. We're all listening. We're all watching. Okay, it's not that important. They back off. And when politicians go, and everybody, we're going to cut everyone's taxes from 4 to 3.9. or from, in, in Colorado, deeply blue state right now, because the Republicans raised taxes and they threw away their control, which had been going for quite some time. Um they have twice now, through the initiative process, cut the income tax from 5% down to 4.9 to 4.8, and they just take it down a little bit at a time. Everyone votes for it. Everyone votes for the cut because everybody benefits. So that's single-rate taxes are the best kind of income taxes because they're tough to raise, easy to reduce, and everybody understands them, and nobody thinks somebody else is getting away with murder because they're not all these different rates and so on. Everybody mm-hmm. pays the same rate. So, um, Eight, nine states have a single rate tax, and five states moved in the last two years to a, and on top of the ones I'm talking about, they passed a law to move to a single rate tax. So next January, uh, Arizona is a 2.5% flat rate tax down from a t- rate as high as four and a half. Uh, our friends in Iowa was 8.6, it'll be down to 3.9 in three years. Wow. Boom, 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 boom. And then there are 10 states where the governor, the Republican leadership have said, we are going to zero. Hmm. Uh, North Carolina has been going to zero for 10 years, and they're well on their way to get to no income tax, personal or individual. Uh, Four years from now, uh, New Hampshire will be a no income tax. They're phasing theirs down. In 12 years, uh, Kentucky's a no income tax. They phase down over 12 years, keep taking the income tax down. Louisiana is a 15-year phase out down. Uh, they're looking at a 10-year phase out down in uh, Mississippi, and they've already started the ball rolling there. Uh, 
Arkansas wants to do it. West Virginia, Virginia. Uh, let me see my states. Um, Oklahoma wants in. Uh, Wisconsin. Uh, we have the votes in both houses to phase down. We have a Democrat governor, so we're going to have to I get either one more vote or wait for a different governor. But uh, Wisconsin will be on the way down to zero. North Dakota is going from 2.9 down to 1.5, uh, and then from there to zero. So we're going to have not eight wow. states at zero, but pretty close to 20 states in the next 15 years will be at zero with others following. Wow, that's really impressive. <clears throat> yeah, it's good news. Yeah, it is. You, you mentioned ballot measures. There's lots of tools that uh, that that uh, individual tax fighters can use. You, you've got uh, and, and organizations. You've got your pledge. You've got ballot measures. You've got the primary system that we don't have in same sort of system in Canada. Advocacy at the state level or the federal level. What's the what's the one tool, the biggest best tool for achieving tax cuts? Um, all of them. Uh, whatever works in your state. If you're in a blue state, meaning you have a Democratic Congress in both houses, like Colorado, the only way to cut taxes through the initiative process. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in a red state, you'd rather not use the initiative process. You'd rather uh, work through the legislature and get as much as you can that way. Um, the legislatures can also put things on the ballot, a referred question. Uh, so in the state of uh, Tennessee, they referred, they have no income tax. They put into the constitution, there will never be an income tax. Not that there isn't one, but there will never be one. Mm -hmm. uh, they put one in Florida, there will never be an income tax. Um, and to just to make sure to <laughs> beat it to death, make sure it doesn't ever come back. Uh, so I, I think you just look at what's possible. Uh, in some areas, the only in New Jersey, the only way to cut taxes is at the local level, because the Democrats run the legislature and they run the governorship into the ground. But you can, through school boards and local government and competent mayors, make people's lives better and make the case for lower taxes. Um, and we're certainly seeing that uh, in other states when the, if you get frustrated that Washington, D.C., federal government can't cut taxes, states are cutting taxes and making it. And again, when you cut taxes, people move from California into your state. They move from New York and New Jersey. And the amount of movement has been dramatic. Mm -hmm. That's why the Electoral College, which is based on how many people there are in every state, California gets less important because they have fewer Electoral College votes for president. New York is like New York is now smaller than Florida. New York is smaller hmm. in population than Florida. Wow. Because people are leaving one and moving to the other. Hmm. Interesting. Um, just circling back to Reagan, I, I, I guess this might be a this might be an obvious question, but uh, who's the best president of your lifetime? Uh, Reagan. 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 What would you say is the number one accomplishment that Reagan? What would you have? You, I know there's lots, but what would you say number one is? He changed the modern Republican Party into a party of principle instead of being a party of the North. Before Reagan, uh, all you knew about somebody if they told you they were Republican was they were born north of the Mason-Dixon line. Hmm. They were from a state that, that supported Lincoln in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And if you were a Democrat, it meant you were born south of the Mason-Dixon line and you were with the Confederacy or your great-grandparents were with the Confederacy during the Civil War. And people were voting for this sort of stupid reason for a hundred years. Hmm. And Reagan said, we're the Republican Party. We won't raise your taxes. We want to limit spending. We want less regulation. And he made progress on all of these things. He deregulated airlines and trucking and buses uh, and uh, trucks. 
uh, which saved, which dropped the cost of transporting goods in the United States by 20%. Mm-hmm. Not a tax cut, deregulation alone. The government stopped helping us and we all got better off for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then a serious national defense. He didn't go around invading other countries, looking for things to do, making the world perfect. He said, you cross certain lines, you answer to us. And he kept the Soviet Union at bay. He had a strong enough military that they could never again take Eastern Europe with some of the new weapons we had. The Russians, they couldn't do a tank attack and take Europe. Well, then what good are you? Um, what kind of a threat are you if that's the case? Um, and so he just changed the nature of the American Republican Party and therefore the nature of the United States and protected America's status in the world. The Reagan Party is, if you go around the table, a collection of people who on their vote moving issue, what they want from the government is to be left alone. Mm -hmm. Taxpayers don't raise my taxes. Businessmen leave us alone. Uh, Various communities of faith leave us alone to practice our faith and transmit it to our children. Um, Gun owners, I I know everybody in Canada and Europe thinks this is weird, but it's a big voting issue in the United States. 21 and a half million Americans have a permit to carry a gun when they want to, concealed. Mm -hmm. Uh, At 27 states, and that's in 44 states have uh, shall issue concealed carry permits. They have to give you the permit. You don't have to ask for it. They have to give it to you. Uh, and in 27 states, there's no permit needed at all. You want to carry a gun, you carry a gun, your business. Uh, government doesn't play any role in this at all. So the Second Amendment, people who care about that, big deal. They vote on it. People who want to vape and not be told they can't, that's a big deal. Um, so uh, all of the people who want to be left alone vote for the same candidate. Because the guy who goes to church all day and the guy who makes money all day and the guy who wants to fondle his guns all day, they're not in conflict. They have different reasons for voting for the same party and the same candidate, mm-hmm. but they don't run each other's lives. I don't go to church all day. I make money all day. I don't carry my guns around. I, you know, I go to church all day. Well, does it bother you that he has guns? No. Does it bother you that that guy goes to church or synagogue or mosque? No. They run their own life. Mm-hmm. Keep the government out of all of our lives. And that's the modern Republican Party. It's the leave us alone coalition and lower taxes benefits everybody in the coalition and everyone in the country. So I asked you about the, the best president of your lifetime. Who's the worst president of your lifetime? Oh, well, there are two ways you can measure worst. Worse in what they did or worse in from where they what they could have accomplished to what they did do. Hmm. Um, probably, I'll take either answer. <laughs> um, There's an argument for Bush Jr. with his failure. He had a majority of the House and Senate, and he did very little with it. And then Mm -hmm. he squandered what he did have uh, with the war in uh, Iraq, and he rebuilt the modern Democratic Party from weakness to strength uh, because he poked it all the time with with the war and other things. Um, He was the most damaging to the country. He brought us Obama and made that a thing, brought us Biden and made that a thing. the Democrats were on their back and he brought them back up. He allowed them off the mat of the ring. Um, longer term, um, Hoover for raising taxes and tariffs and creating the Great Depression um, mm-hmm. and then giving us the Democrats to fix the Great Depression by making it last 12 years instead of a year and a half, which is what the previous <laughs> depression took. The mm-hmm. previous depression pre- before Hoover under Coolidge, year and a half and then back Right is right. What do we do? Cut spending and nothing else. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Hoover raised taxes, uh, raised tariffs, 
got rules on what people could do. Every stupid thing that people credit FDR with was first stupidly done by Hoover and FDR just did it on a bigger basis. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole administrative state, we're going to have bureaucrats doing everything. Um, the I'm looking at NRA codes up on the wall from my grandfather's factory, you know, where they had regulations on wages and prices for everything mm-hmm. is what up there uh, for the insect screen industry specifically. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you can imagine the micro level at which these idiots man had tried to man. There was NRA was declared unconstitutional, but a whole bunch of it snuck in through the bureaucratic state over time. So Hoover, uh, and I don't blame FDR. Is that's what Democrats do? Hoover mm-hmm. should have known better. That was a criminal act. And frankly, Bush's uh, behavior on taking foreign policy unseriously uh, and making it very expensive for the for the country. Mm-hmm. So who so who was the best candidate that never became president? Oh wow! Um, well, Coolidge should have stayed and gotten reelected. That would have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Taft, who was the guy who was had he replaced uh, Truman instead of Eisenhower. Eisenhower was a manager, uh, and Taft would have repealed much of the the New Deal. Uh, and moved us back to a freer and more open society. We'd have had stronger and better growth. I think that would, he would have been Reagan before Reagan, Taft. Hmm. Okay. Um, I was I was expecting to hear Barry Goldwater. Uh, no, no love for Barry Goldwater. Well, no, because at the end of the day, he didn't keep fighting for liberty, hmm. uh, and he gave a great speech, but he never used his stuff to rally the Congress and the Senate to to oppose Nixon when Nixon was doing um, moving to the left on various issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could have been he was he was an example of some of the congressmen that we have, not too many senators who go on Fox TV and scream about how hardcore they are, but they don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't spend the time to get the country ready for his message. So he just Mm -hmm. talked about something that people weren't informed about. I mean, people voted for, you know, Goldwater's worldview with Reagan, but gold, but Reagan had to help convince the country to be there. Mm -hmm. The failure of the Democrats helped, but, but Reagan spent his life going around, giving speeches, working. Goldwater didn't do the party building that Reagan did, um, going around and working with everybody and so on. So as a writer, as a mm-hmm. speechwriter, as somebody who, a talking head on TV, he'd have been great. But mm-hmm. as an elected official, instead of using a campaign to explain to the country the importance of moving to freedom, he didn't do that. Uh, to be fair, the media was out to chop his head off and all that. Sure. I know. Life is unfair. They were throwing marbles at his feet the whole time. They lied about him. They did that to Reagan, too. Mm-hmm. And Reagan remained standing. And kept going. And by the way, didn't win the first time. Remember, he mm-hmm. lost to Ford, um, right. and uh, he lost to Nixon. He was, you know, being up for stuff. So, Goldwater, if he'd been a little more patient, spent more time changing America and less time giving speeches to the hardcore guys who already agreed with him, I think could have been a change agent. That said, I serve on the board of directors of the Goldwater Institute, which celebrates Goldwater's vision, mm-hmm. if not the lack of practicality and getting it done. That's a very fair assessment. Very fair assessment. Uh, I want to. I want to move on to your Wednesday meetings. You 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 found yeah. famous Wednesday meetings back in 1993. I've I've attended a couple of them. It's a very impressive crowd and and a great meeting. 
what was the impetus for kicking that off and and why do you think they've endured 30 years later um there's a wonderful anecdote and somebody someplace is going to tell me where it comes from but uh it's about a guy goes into a sculpture's uh, workroom and he says that is a beautiful marble sculpture of zeus how in the world did you do that and the sculptor says well I started with a big block of marble and I removed all the bits that didn't look like Zeus. Okay. Uh, that's how I got Zeus. Uh, we built the Wednesday meeting by thinking through all of the meetings we'd ever attended before and what killed them or made them less valuable than they could have been. And so we said, you know what? You can only talk for three minutes because if you can't put your thoughts into three minutes, you you, you're thinking about it out loud in front of everybody. Right. And you're you know, you're doing the work you should have done last night to be prepared to do it in three minutes. And if we're going to have people who care about 25, 30 different major issues talking, you've got to really make your issue understandable to everybody else. And nobody wants to hear 15 minutes about another issue that's marginal in their worldview, but they need to know what you're doing. They don't need 15 minutes of it. Um, so you have to talk for three minutes. That's it. You have a handout. You want to say, oh, but I have so much on a chart. Make a handout, hand it out. Three minutes. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why. Here's my handout on more information. Here's my link to get more. Um, three minutes. Talk about the future and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Not what your ridiculous hopes and aspirations are. Not why the world has gone to hell since the Reformation or something in the past that you can't change. Uh, and you're not allowed to say, the president should do this. Really? Unless you have a plan to make the president do it. That would be useful. Okay. So you talk about what you're doing, about the future. You talk for three minutes, no arguing, no debating with anybody else. There, not everybody in the room agrees with everybody. This is the Leave Us Alone Coalition. There are guys here who are with us because they're on guns, who have, in my view, the oddest views on free trade, meaning they don't get it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you talk about what you're doing. And if somebody says something that's slightly different than your view and you want to speak to it next week or the week after, asked to present if you're doing something on the subject, not just, well, I don't like what Fred's doing. That's not it. Who cares what you think? Mm -hmm. If you're doing something else or you're doing it differently, if people have two different ideas about criminal justice reform, present them separately to the group about what you're doing without referencing somebody else being insufficiently wonderful. Um, so, and those, and then the, the meetings off the record um, and, uh, we have twenty. We have twenty-five plus presenters in an hour and a half at the DC meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, there are forty-five state versions of the meeting. There have been fifty, but the meetings can fall apart if they break the rules um, and allow people to talk for too long about one topic or two topics. Um, you go to a meeting if the four people talk for fifteen minutes. What if two of the issues aren't terribly interesting to you? That's right. a deadly meeting. But if somebody talks for three minutes about you know, some particular part of antitrust law that's very important to many people, I at least need to know it's going on. And I'll try and help if I can, but I don't need 15 minutes on it. Mm -hmm. Three minutes is fine. So that's what's made the meetings work. Uh, we they, they meet at the same time, at the same place every week or in states every month. So People come in and out of D.C. and they know on Wednesday they can find the meeting here. People come from overseas. They know on Wednesday they can find the meeting here. We don't do it just when the Congress is in session. Mm -hmm. I don't know when Congress is in session. I could never care when Congress is in session. Why would I schedule my life around when Congress is in session? 
you know, you have the meeting every Wednesday. Sometimes Congress is in session and the congressman can come and state led and Congress, congressional staff can come. But the rest of us are having a meeting every Wednesday. Now, Fourth mm-hmm. of July, Christmas, we don't meet on July. We don't meet on Wednesdays. But otherwise, we have the meeting. Hmm. You've had lots of presenters over the years. Uh, who, who is the most memorable or significant one? Oh, we had George Soros come. Um, and he had heard about the meeting. He was told about the meeting by Ralph Nader, left of center consumer advocate, who asked to come because he wanted to work with us on some issue where we were both against corporate welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he sat on, in on the meeting and he <laughs> was quoted in several publications going, I'm scared because, <laughs> you know, he, you know, 20 people get up. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. He's going, ah, this is, we don't do this on the left. He says, you guys are all caring about other people's issues, aware of what else they're doing. And you work as a team in the sense that you know what's going on and you can help each other. And there are a lot of side meetings. We use microphones at the meeting so that it, I don't have to go, Shh, if somebody's talking to the guy next, I want people talking to the guy next to him. Mm-hmm. I want people stepping out of the room and getting a cup of coffee and from the coffee machine. So there's, there's a glass you could step out of the room, still watch the meeting and hear the meeting while you step out and have a conversation with somebody because we want people to have that kind of interchange. But uh, both Ralph Nader was there and was impressed. And then he told this to um, uh, George Soros. George Soros came and I I told, I, I walked into the meeting. I said, in five minutes, George Soros is coming. Anybody got a comment they want to make that George Soros can't hear? And there was something about judges. We did that. Mm-hmm. And then George Soros came in. We had a regular meeting for an hour. And then for an hour, we talked with George Soros. What moves you? Why do you do what you do? Uh, is there anything we can agree on? You know, and it's very interesting to hear what moved him, why he does what he does. Uh, he did not start out as a lefty. He was beaten up by the communists, by the by the Nazis. He was in Hungary, right? Um, and he said the first time he got involved in politics was that 50 states had different laws on when you're dead, brain dead, heart dead. And so he helped work on the movement, which is in 88, 89, to come up with one. So you can't move somebody to Nebraska, to, oh, still alive. Uh, I don't know, for purposes of death taxes or something, um, or insurance. He's not dead. We don't have to pay life insurance. Just don't move him out of this state. We'll be okay. Um, so one rule, one rule on who's dead. Um, and But then the war in Iraq set him off. And that's he said that's when he just decided he hated George Bush and Republicans and he got all in. Um, he saw uniforms and stuff and he just, you know, I've seen this before. Uh, and that tells you one of the costs of the Bush administration and the Iraq war is the people on the left that it motivates to re-engage in politics. Mm-hmm. The entire quote unquote peace movement, the communist left wing, anti-American, anti-military, that had died with the end of the Cold War. Bush brought it back. Hmm. You mentioned 19 countries now are, are uh, hosting these meetings. Uh, where's Have you been to some of these ones in the foreign countries? And where's sort of the strangest one you've been at? Um, well, I don't know if it's strangest, but one of the most intriguing is Ukraine. It's been going for a number of years. Uh, I've been virtually three or four times. Uh, they meet in something that looks like the Versailles Hall of Mirrors. And they're on this big fancy table and there are like 15 of them and they run all of the free market groups. And then in the background is this huge Versailles looking thing. Um, the meeting continues uh, in person there. Oh, wow. uh, I have joined it uh, virtually and then they join our meeting in D.C. 
the fellow uh, who runs it is a state is an elected official uh, member of parliament from the ruling party who one got the okay to do a statue of reagan in the middle of kiev um it's gonna be reagan it's all designed and everything they're not building it because they don't want to be a target <laughs> until the war's over mm-hmm. but reagan walking through the berlin wall and just busting it aside uh oh. and you can see it from all you know 360 degrees he also got the law passed to legalize private ownership of land in 2014 <laughs> it took until the, the russians had the private ownership of farmland before Ukraine did. But Ukraine got that passed with this guy and some free market groups. Um, And he's now on first reading of of a gun rights bill so that everybody can keep their guns after the war. Um, Because before this war, only 2% of people in Ukraine, I'm told, um, had guns. Private sector people had guns, almost disarmed. Now they're armed and they want to be able to keep being armed. That's why some of those horrible rapes and so on that took place when the Russians came in, women didn't have a pistol. If, if there's an apartment building and somebody knows, you know, there's seven people with pistols in there, do you really go in? But if you know nobody does, then maybe you do. Uh, you don't have to shoot every last one of them. You don't need a machine gun. A pistol will do just fine uh, in stopping some Russian soldier who's coming through. Uh, so the, the, the Ukraine participation is very, very powerful. We have an effort in the United States. States are giving confiscated weapons to Ukraine, hmm. uh, and they're doing it through this group as well. Um, so the Ukrainian center-right meeting is great, um, but I like a, a bunch of the meetings are really exciting. Japan, I just met with a guy who runs the meeting in Tokyo, hmm. and they have 34 prefectures, I guess this is like congressional districts, okay. and they've got meetings, they told me, in 34. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, wow. That's extremely impressive. Uh, uh, I've been down to the Argentinian meeting, that's very nice, a very strong we bring the international people together once a year to all talk to each other. Um, good meeting in Poland, very good meeting at the EU. Um, the British meeting blew up because they they hated each other based on who took credit for Brexit. This didn't break up during Brexit. Not everybody was for it. But after Brexit, when they were fighting over credit, you're going, guys, guys, can we calm down and get back? We'll get it back organized again. But it was mm-hmm. it was the tragic, unnecessary loss of the the british movement, which was a 70 person meeting i'd been to it twice wow that's yeah that's very impressive yeah just think about the the reagan statue when i was in kiev in 2012 i think it was i was uh surprised by seeing the lenin statue and that they had an armed guard from the communist party walking around it at the night because they were worried someone was going to come in to face it so you're gonna have to figure out uh i guess they're gonna need the guns because someone's gonna have to patrol that reagan statue i think at night because the communists will come i'm sure so yeah that's, that's really interesting. very interesting the, the the reagan statue is replacing a communist statue which was torn down a little while ago but oh, by, the, by, by mobs not by the government right oh that's interesting i have to i'm gonna have to look into that one that's really really cool uh just changing topics on you just briefly here um u.s debt insanely large uh yet we rarely hear, we've talked a lot about taxes but we really rarely hear american politicians talk about the debt uh why is that why is that not an issue in the u.s like it is in other countries um well partially because we print our own money and we're a big enough economy that we've gotten away with it but that doesn't last forever uh and i want us to focus on total spending not the deficit the deficit is the difference between two very interesting numbers, two very important numbers, how much money the government steals, takes by force, and how much it wastes, spends, okay? The difference between how much they spend and how much they take 
is the deficit. But if you, you don't fix anything by raising taxes, the money's gone. What mm-hmm. you want to do is take spending down. Uh, and the fix there is when we take all the welfare programs in America. We've passed this in the House four times. When we have a House, a Senate, and a president, and Trump just wasn't focused on this enough as he should have been. The next Republican president will be. We will take all the welfare programs and block grant them to the states. We say, did you get $10 billion in you know, food stamps and jobs programs and housing subsidies and Medicaid? Medicare and Social Security are two separate things that that, that are on their own. But the, all these, you don't pay anything for, you don't pay, uh, you just get it cash because you show up and say, I'm poor, give me money or give me something. Uh, we block grant those to the states. We save trillions every decade and we can pay down the debt as you move forward. Um, just building, taking the cost curve of the welfare programs down, that is the big change. The other change that we need to do is all pensions, federal, state, local, need to be defined contribution, like a 401k or an I mm. or individual retirement account, rather than defined benefit. All the private sector, except the unionized old ones that are dying, are are new have defined contribution pensions. Uh, most uh, 58% of Americans have a defined contribution pension, 401k, IRA. Um, Governments tend to be defined benefit, but mm. they're beginning to fix. Utah's moved over completely. All new hires starting about 10 years ago will have a defined, will have a 401k. Mm. So you put in 10%, the government puts in 10%, 20% of your salary saved every year. And that's, and you walk out the door now or 20 years from now, that's your money. That mm. nobody has, we're not going to forget to put it away for you. Um, it's yours. So, Pension reform and welfare reform out to the states are the two biggies. Everything else is a mopping up operation. At the state lo- local level, school choice, giving everybody a uh, uh, education savings account, voucher, scholarship, uh, what they passed in Arizona for all students. All students have that option, not just poor kids or, or troubled kids, but all students. That is going state by state. And we'll have half the states will have full school choice in the next 10 years. Um, I mean, we've got very great ones in New Hampshire and West Virginia and Florida and other states are doing more and more. But the one, the best one that just passed this last year in Arizona is everything you could possibly want. Uh, And more and more states, that's now the gold standard. That's the model of what you want to do. That's 6% of GDP that would in effect be privatized in the sense that it allows competition. It might be the local school, government school might still exist if it can be competent mm-hmm. and parents want to go there and they bring their scholarship to that school but if they don't like the school they want to go to a different school that's completely different mm-hmm. uh, it's a you you know then that school will disappear as it should or it'll become less large and fewer people only the people who want to be there will be there uh so these are these are all doable in the next 10 to 20 years we're in great shape as long as the Republican Party can remain the party that will not raise your taxes, that will focus on spending restraint and school choice. Um, and there'll be some difficult times as California and New York crumble mm-hmm. and all the useful people leave. Massachusetts just passed a big tax hike on high-income people and whole industries are going to leave mm-hmm. because they don't need to put up with that nonsense. You can move to New Hampshire and they don't bother you. Um, you could move to Florida. But again... It's not just eight states. We're going to come up on 20 states that are in that, that will be either there or en route to be there. Wow. 
You mentioned uh, the next uh, Republican president. So I'm going to ask you to put on your your uh, look into your crystal ball and tell me who, who's going to be the next Republican presidential nominee. Uh, Trump's announced he wants to run or intend, says he intends to run. Right now, the polling shows that in some of the early states, he loses to DeSantis, the governor of uh, Florida. Um, different states have Trump under different polls, have him under 50, uh, but ahead of DeSantis nationally. Uh, in the key early states, losing. Uh, but Trump, four years, six years ago, six years ago, ran against six Republican governors who all looked like Ronald Reagan. They were all Reagan Republicans. So the Reagan Republican vote was like 70% to the Trump 30%, mm -hmm. but it was divided into six. And so Trump just kept winning because until these people dropped out, at the very end, uh, Cruz was still all by himself as the only guy up against Trump. He was he was able to win um, a couple of states uh, and and many states that have uh, caucuses. Mm -hmm. But if you do, if the if again you have Trump running, I'm Trump. I'm the orange guy, and I've got my own theory of the universe here, um, but which, which is in many ways consistent with Reaganism, but in some ways not. Insufficient mm -hmm. focus on spending, doesn't understand international trade and and how it helps the economy mm -hmm. um and uh but if you t if you then have ev everybody else dividing it six ways then trump probably wins but if um it's trump DeSantis for some time trump might decide to do something else he's older mm -hmm. he doesn't need to do this again uh why risk losing at that point then you'd probably have five people come in to challenge DeSantis mm -hmm. because uh and so it's not it's if Trump walked away, it's not DeSantis's. It's DeSantis's favored right now. He has the most support and so on, and might well be the guy. Um, but we've we've got some very great people who who are thinking of running and could. Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, is turning a blue state red. Mm -hmm. Extra brownie points for doing that. Um, there's the governor of Oklahoma, Stitt, great guy. Indian tribes and the unions all got together to try and crush him, and he beat them. Hmm. Very, very uh, impressive. Uh, Reynolds, the uh, woman who's the governor of Iowa, has been a very impressive governor. School choice, phasing the income down tax towards zero. Uh, Tristy Nome, the governor of the state of uh, South Carolina. Uh, I'm sorry, South Carolina, South Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota. Um, she's running. Um, Haley, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, former UN ambassador, uh, looking to run the vice president could run. We, we got, there are 10 people who'd be great presidents, mm -hmm. uh, looking to run, uh, as opposed to the Democrats with not much of a bench. The Democrat party is much older than the Republican party in congressmen, senators, presidential people. Uh, we only allow you to be a committee chairman in the house or the Senate for six years. Mm -hmm. Then you go someplace else. The Democrats, if you look at Nancy Pelosi and the guy who was following her, these people are in their 80s. Right. And the next generation is way down. Um, it was said that in Ohio, that nobody between 77 and 40 in the Democratic Party could run for statewide office. Hmm. They just didn't have anybody in that zone. So you could either run very old people or very young people, but not anybody who's in the prime of their career because mm -hmm. uh, they're just gone. Uh, hmm. So I, I think the Republicans are likely to win the presidency again. Um, and I mean, Trump, if he's going to do it, is going to have to convince people 
that he can be disciplined and focus not on grievances of the past, but on the future. Mm -hmm. So you think Biden will be the Democratic candidate in 2024? Yeah, there are 10 people around Biden who run the government. Mm -hmm. Biden is the spokesman for sure. it. He's, he's, he's not completely all there. He's not thinking this stuff through. He's not making the decisions. Um, I think we have the same thing in Canada. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Well, but in, in you know Canada, you could have a young guy, but if the unions and everybody else around him are mm -hmm. making the decision, it doesn't matter which pretty boy they put in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, and Biden says yes to the labor unions, the trial lawyers, the big city political machines, the people who don't care about crime, all the various left-wing groups. Um, and he just takes the most left-wing position around and does that. Um, so the people around him, they don't want somebody else who could make their own decisions. So they've got this little castle they've built. So I think they'll run him again, even if they have to keep him in the basement longer than they did the last time. The establishment press in this country has been complicit in pretending they don't see a problem with Biden, pretending that it's normal to campaign out of your basement instead of out talking to people, uh, that it's okay not to debate, to engage in conversation and debate as Biden's not capable of. Um, and they did it again for a Senate candidate successfully in Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, so uh, I think they can show that, you know, Weekend at Bernie's is not just a movie. It can be a campaign. Uh, <laughs> and you can, it's more fun to govern with a president who doesn't have any of his own ideas. You know, you don't, who wants that if you're a staffer? You want to do stuff. Not, a, not try and convince the president to do something. You want to tell them, this is what we're doing, kid. Uh, and the special interests in the Democratic Party are powerful enough to mandate this anyway. But now they've got it in physical form. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I've kept you late here. I have a couple last questions for you. Sure. Mostly just about you. Um, and this one, yeah. Uh, well, you tra you traveled to several, I've read that you've traveled to several war zones in the late 80s, helping anti-Soviet forces organize. I'm sure some of them were very professionally run, others maybe a little more ramshackle. What what do you recall from that time and what groups out of that time that were fighting Soviet forces uh, were most interesting to work with? Uh, well, we had there was a series. There was the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Uh, Abdul Haq was the leader of the Kabul area, and I did some work with him. And um, this a uh, lot of getting the press in and out to get coverage for people that the establishment press wasn't willing to spend the time and effort uh, in there. The weapons that we were able to get them, the stingers were determinative. I spent time in Angola with Jonas Savimbi and UNITA, and there was one where we inflicted tremendous costs on the Cubans, uh, not ultimately successful, close, but it didn't, didn't quite make it. Um, and uh, there we still have, unfortunately, a, a communist government. It's not, completely run by Cuba these days, but it's problematic. Uh, Mozambique, which was having serious mm. challenges. Uh, and uh, I, I have read that I was down in Nicaragua. I, I, I was supportive of the Nicaraguan resistance. I was not in Nicaragua. Oh. Um, but it's fun to read about yourself sometimes. <laughs> Some of the exciting <laughs> things that you did. Um, people just sort of, well, it's probably close enough. Uh, for government work. Uh, my favorite was talking to the Laotian resistance uh, fighting against the communists at the time. And they said, well, in the old days, if you wanted to marry somebody, you sort of said, you, you're with me. But since we armed everybody in the fight against the communists and the women are armed too, this 
marriage thing is like a negotiation <laughs> to talk to them. Um, I, I paraphrase, but this was his point. There was a, that, that women's equality came from being heavily armed. Um, <laughs> and uh, you'd think the Afghans could get this one going, but uh, mm-hmm. not yet. Uh, so the, they were really great people and they did a great, a lot of work and they helped destroy the Soviet empire. Uh, mm-hmm. Even the ones that didn't save their own countries uh, were part of destroying the Soviet empire and leading it to the point where it couldn't get back together again. And Ukraine is, uh, I think, will end up with its country back intact. But the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, uh, drove Finland and Sweden into NATO. We, we could have begged and threatened and cajoled all our lives and never made that happen. Putin did. You could have got the Germans to get off their butt and start spending some money on their own defense. Now that Poland's between them and Russia, they go, what do we care? They'll have to, when they chop over Poland, then we'll look at it. We'll care that. Um, now they're still very excited about uh, trying to be useful in this, in this process. And Ukraine, the idea that this is a sister state, to the extent that Ukrainians had some sort of Slavic friendship with it, that's gone. I mean, that's gone. If you occupied the place, you'd spend your life defending against people who didn't want you there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, just massive challenges the Soviet Union has done. Uh, I, you're thinking about China, uh, starting in 2015 to 2040, the 25 years from 2015 to 24, we're partway through that. The number of people over 55 in China goes up by 250 million, and the number of people uh, under 55 goes down by 250 million. Hmm. So something that's basically the size of two American labor forces age out and disappear from the labor market Mm -hmm. over a 25-year period. Hmm. Uh, A lot of the Chinese growth, 6%, 8%, came from people out in the countryside into the cities or along the rivers particularly the ones that became navigable with the Three Gorges Dam uh, and, and canals, uh, so that everybody lives on the water now. But but there aren't any more people to drag into factories. And the number of workers or soldiers is declining precipitously. Um, you know, we're men and women, so even if you said to change your mind and go back to having more kids, you, you can't get out of that situation that they're in. Uh, they can't do immigration. They can't even deal with the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and so on. You know, um, so I think long term, I'm less scared of China than some other people are. They're surrounded by countries that hate them, and several of them have nuclear weapons. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, I'm going to really change the topic again here on you. You've, you've attended Burning Man. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been portrayed as a lefty hippie gathering. Why did you go? And 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 is it portrayed like uh, what was what I hear about it? Uh, what the truth? Um, you should post and link to the article I wrote for the Guardian uh, after having been to the first Burning Man I was in, which I think was 2013. Mm-hmm. I've been I but I think I've been to eight of them, um, and because we lost two in uh, to COVID mm-hmm. uh, and to bureaucratic incompetence. Uh, Burning Man came to talk to me because the Obama administration was extorting money out of them oh, uh, and the local government. They say, well, you know, we we could use a truck. <laughs> well, we'll rent a truck if the Bureau of Land Management needs it. No, we could use a truck. Uh, and then they made the mistake of writing down. We want you to provide ice cream for all our staff 24 seven. We need port. We need not porta potties, but um 
professional toilets. This is the middle of the desert. This is the middle of the desert. Uh, and they were just ex- driving the costs up for Burning Man. And so they came to talk to me about if I could help. Mm-hmm. And I got to be, be friends with Larry Harvey and Marion, who, who were the folks running it. Um, and they invited me down um, out out west, mm-hmm. uh, Nevada, northern Nevada. Um, and I couldn't make it the first year they invited me because it was the same week as the Republican convention. And I tweeted at the time, who was the idiot who put the Republican National Convention, the one that nominated uh, Romney, Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. the same week as Burning Man? Who is, is there time to change this? Can this be fixed? Uh, and then the next year I said, <laughs> OK, I'm going. It was funny, the number of people who remembered the earlier <laughs> tweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I've, I've gone out ever since. These are these are your friends. These are the people you mm-hmm. see every year and you spend time with. And it's great fun. It's a lot of work. It's not hippies. To get there is a lot of work mm-hmm. because you have to bring all your food and you've got to bring everything and you have to take it all out with you and you leave no trace uh, when you leave. Uh, and there's a lot of artwork and music and people doing all sorts. I, I give lectures and stuff like that. I did stand up comedy a couple of times hmm. uh, at various bars and events and things like that. I speak to the Psychedelic Drug Association every year that I'm there. I give a little talk on Fridays about hmm. liberty and the politics of liberty. Um, so it's a great collection of folks, a lot of small L libertarians. Um, it's, the government doesn't do anything except loot it. And get in the way. Uh, it really is self-generated, self-organized. They have their own 800 people who are the police force who just, you know, uh, the rangers who talk down anybody who's got a problem or conflict resolution. Um, so there's, it's no place for lazy people. Hmm. Really interesting. What's your uh, all-time favorite movie, Grover? All-time favorite movie. Um, Moscow on the Hudson. Hmm. Okay. Story about a Russian defector who moves to the United States. Oh, okay. I, have not, I haven't seen that one. I'll have to watch yeah. that one. Very good. What's your all-time favorite book? Oh, my goodness. All-time favorite book. Um, any Rex Stout, Nero Wolf murder mystery. Um... I tend to read murder mysteries. Um, uh, Bastiat's writings, mm. the law. I mean, you want a short explanation of the liberty. Bastiat's mm. the law, short book. Uh, good choice. If you're on a road trip, what's playing on the radio? Um, 1960s rock and roll, um, classic rock. Uh, sometimes you're in a row place where country western is the only thing that's really available and that that works um and for trips i i I fall in love with country western whenever i uh uh have to listen to it for five hours driving from one place (laughs) to another um but it doesn't stick exactly uh but uh certainly appreciate jazz Uh, very good well grover i've kept you way over time thank you so much for your time thanks for the information i i love the chat uh, keep up the the good fight down south. We, we appreciate it up north. Everything that you do helps us out here too. When somebody gets it right, it makes it tougher for everybody else to get it wrong. Our 50 states are doing that and hopefully will be a good example for you instead of a bad example. I sure hope so. Thank you so much, Grover. Take it easy.